interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Raw Selection Private Equity Podcast. Joining us today is Ryan Schlitt, CEO of Avidity Advisors, an alternative advisory firm operating out of the US, UK, and Germany. Welcome, and thank you very much for sharing your insights with us, Ryan. Thanks, Alex. It's great uh, to be on. I appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. So this is customary. If you could give us a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Yeah. Um, so for me, I've spent 23 years in alternative advisory, uh, dating back to uh, a short stint at DLJ in their private fund group before we were consumed at Credit Suisse um, into their private fund group and spent 19 years with that team, ranging from responsibilities early on on the project management side, GP origination, due diligence underwrites, some secondary activity back when you had to burn CDs and you had no data room. Um, so an interesting path for a young analyst to uh, spend his nights on. Um, and later uh, took up the sales bag and went down to Dallas, Texas uh, to learn the business of interfacing with the institutional LPs and the family offices that were investing in the alternative investment complex overall. Um, and later went into some different roles within the group itself and ultimately had one of those decisions you have to make a fork in the road and decided to be an entrepreneur um, and set up a new firm, which has become Avidity Advisors uh, with a like-minded group of partners. Um, it's been a wonderful journey to date and we can spend some more time on it. But the idea was to be an alternative advisory and uh, an alternative investment bank where we're banking the general partner, uh, the sponsor overall, and felt like as we look back in the 2000s and 2010s, the sponsor had become uh, one of the most critical uh, clients in finance. But also, if you think about asset management, it had been the tip of the spear of asset management for the last 20 to 30 years uh, in terms of innovation. And I think in terms of asset management, it is the spear for the next 20 to 30 years and the products that they're producing and the solutions uh, that they're uh, providing to the investment community overall. And we expect um, a further increase in both assets, but in asset type that they're providing to the investment community overall. And so with Avidity, we wanted to have one client, which is the alternative investment firm and the LPs who invest in the complex globally overall, and how we were thinking about bringing these solutions to them on a regular basis, but includes more than funds, but also includes secondary solutions, includes direct solutions, at times it includes liquidity solutions, um, whether it be on private and or public opportunities uh, overall. And so with that vision, um, we white papered the firm. Um, we opened our doors um, in Jan 10, 2020. So a precious time with eight people uh, in one office a couple months before COVID set in, uh, but proud to say today the firm is 55 people um, across four uh, offices, um, three more regional ones, 
so today we have three lines of business, which is our capital formation, which is our placement suite of services, liquidity solutions, which is our secondaries practice, which includes both LP uh, portfolio trades um, and also GP solutions, continuation funds, end of life solutions, uh, et cetera. And lastly, capital solutions, we're able to provide public and private capital uh, to specific portfolio companies. Uh, that have it. And so um, overall, it's around $20 billion uh, that we've advised on over the last kind of two and a half, three years that were raised. Um, and we're excited about where we are. Uh, the firm certainly is growing, but uh, so is the addressable marketplace as there are, we believe, around 13,000 plus private equity GPs um, now in existence um, across the globe. Interesting. Well, we're definitely going to be starting to talk about fundraising, LP uh, type work. But before we jump into that, Ryan, what's one mistake that you see private equity firms or their portfolio companies making and what actions would you suggest to correct them? Yeah, it, look, I, I think a couple of things that we see, and this will probably dovetail a little bit into the conversation today, just overall fundraising and what we're seeing in the markets overall and two items that we've you know seen recently is this a groups coming to market probably too soon and some of that was on the backs of what transpired coming out of the robust 2021 fundraising cycle um post-covid and people were deploying capital quite quickly and what had been a three to four year uh, fundraising cycle for firms in between fundraises became 18 months in, in many instances or 20 months. Um, and that I think put pressure on their LP base, right? From what allocation they had available, how they had paced things in terms of their capital deployment. And I think if you're not fully ready, fully, you know, nearly invested on your current fund so that you can quickly begin investing capital on behalf of your clients uh, in the fund that you're seeking to raise, plus you've driven the necessary liquidity and or portfolio value creation metrics right uh, to evidence that it's in good shape and the prior fund before that has real DPI associated with it. And then lastly, just making sure from a strategy standpoint, your existing LPs have been uh, communicated to well in advance, expect you to be in market at that point in time, have the ability and capacity uh, to participate with you early uh, in that race to help provide confidence uh, in a market today that is more challenged than probably any market we've seen in the last, let's call it, 13, 14 years uh, overall. And I think all of these things go back to it being, it's, I, I had an old boss who used to say, it's not when you start, it's when you finish. And I think he was very right about that because I think if you do the homework, do the things that you can control up front, then you're more prepared as you enter a market, enter the fundraising market overall. And we've seen it elongate quite a bit, Alex. Uh, the most recent uh, frequent statistics put it at 20.8 months, I think, roughly 21 months average time that it's taking to raise a, a private equity fund, which is up meaningfully over the last kind of year, year and a half, which was at 16 months at that point in time. And by the way, that reporting is measured and sometimes even by when firms are filing a rate even in the U.S. by way of example, when they have a first close, uh, we, we actually expect that the fundraising timelines are taking longer than, than even reported um, from the market itself. 
And so those are the things we think you can control to the best of your abilities. And then once you're in market and you've done everything you can to, to, to prepare for success, then, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with what is a choppier, you know, a little bit of win in your face market at that point in time. But I think you're well prepared uh, in order to do so. Perfect. And you mentioned the preparation for success of fundraising. You know, yep. our perspective at the moment of what we're seeing in the market is we're seeing private equity firms, some doing phenomenal raises and and doing that particularly quickly. You know, got a key client of ours, which is a European fund that also invests globally. Uh, Archimed, they've just raised 3.5 billion fund, largest one, double their previous fund, ridiculous size um, for, a, for a firm focused on small and mid cap, now large cap deals. Um, and then I'm not going to name firms that are struggling, but we also know firms that are struggling with raising capital and not being able to do that. What what are some of the things that you say or you see that make a firm good with regards to their process of raising capital and well prepared firms to um, to achieve a successful fundraise in you know the twenty months plus or minus however long that takes. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I I think none of it's rocket science, right, Alex? And and what we're doing out there. But if I was going to line out what we're seeing from the attributes of those that are having successful races versus those that are struggling, I think there, there are some clear patterns um, on both sides of the equation overall. And it goes back to, A, the prep period is incredibly important and understanding what is the demand uh, appetite of both that existing set and what you believe to be, and this is always a crystal ball, and we try to spend time here at Avidity before we launch any raise in partnership with our clients, of trying to analytically calibrate what we think are the demand centers for the product that they're launching into market and on the timeline in which they're entering the marketplace itself overall. And if you look at some of the firms that are able to achieve success, because this market isn't as challenged as experiencing 2009, by way of example. There was not capital hardly available, no matter how good the firm was, in order to raise at that point in time. Whereas today, there is capital out there. It's, it's, it's very crowded with over 3,000 private equity funds raising to begin with and overall. And so you have to really differentiate your story of how you communicate to those LPs to convince them where they have limited room for new relationships that you should be the general partner that they choose to make part of their portfolio overall. And so the performance, the clear communication, um, and clearly having that momentum with your existing investor set plus those that have followed you closely is critically important. Because the momentum in today's market when things are taking 20 months or more is what drives people to focus and decide to prioritize at any given point once that momentum is achieved, the raise that you have in the market overall. If not, it really behooves, um, I think, an investor that has limited capacity for new relationships to continue to evaluate and see what options are available to them over any period of time. And, and, and frankly, it's probably the right thing for them to do, right? Like in terms of trying to choose the best options for their for their constituents um, from a fiduciary standpoint overall. And one of the critical items and, and points of sale, we, we always think, look, it, you have to have 
an investor that wants to consider the offering, right? Um, and, and be willing to to do that uh, because you can't run a race if you don't start it. But there's another critical point in time that we believe none of us are in the room, that be the advisor, us in, in, in many instances, but the general partner themselves, where the client we're working with is communicating internally, you know, whether to take a step forward on any given investment opportunity overall. And we think it's, it's important um, that they're able to synthesize in a clear fashion that you could, you know, relay a 90 to 120 seconds, so to speak, you know, what, why is it, you know, very clear what the strategy is and what the value proposition is that the, that the general partner is bringing uh, to the LP and their portfolio overall. And I think those things show when you can do that in, and understand what are the, the value drivers of your firm, which they're going to be different on each of the firms, right? The collection of them, we'll see similar ones in each of them have components of it. But the collection of what those value drivers are for you are typically unique, right? To each and given each given firm uh, overall, and we believe that helps drive that success. With performance obviously trumping, right? The integrity of the, the investment professionals, et cetera, how they how how they communicate with their LPs. Those that have struggled, some it's not necessarily you know. It, it beholden to them or their performance. They may have LPs that have liquidity uh, challenges, et cetera, with that. And so unable to participate at the levels that they have in the past. There are some too that have come back with performance that's still somewhat unproven or unrealized. And I think all those things um, make it more challenging than ever before uh, in the markets as, as, as the, given the limited number of, new relationship lot a lot of the institutions have overall. And I think that is is probably the biggest pressure we see from a fundraising standpoint. Mm-hmm. And if you're not able to secure, you know, that existing set of support early on, it typically leads to a longer raise for you to get to your desired targets, if at all. Okay, interesting. And out of interest, how much, because in a simplistic world, you'd probably guess the majority of the firms that have good performance don't struggle with fundraising now i do know some firms that have struggled with fundraising have got good performance i know it's not always true but is if we look at percentages and we'd have to give accurate here but is the lion's share of the percentage of the success increase percentage of a fundraise is 60 70 80 percent of that all sat around previous fund performance or is there other weightings that you think, do you know what, you need to get this and the fund performance right? You know, everything's always going to be have a heavy weighting on performance. Yeah. But what's your thoughts on that? Sorry to interrupt here. Just a quick note to highlight our new sponsor, Grata. The private equity market is rapidly shifting to a data-driven, proprietary deal sourcing standard. Grata provides the window into over 7 million middle market private companies. Contact Grata so you can access the market first. Request a demo at www.grata.com. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's it's a uh, it's a good question. I think it actually is more layered the answer uh, than you would expect. And that I think in past markets where we've seen a larger capacity for new relationships from the institutions themselves. Um, that performance was a key kind of metric driver 
that you're able to drive a, you know, a, a line in and say, yeah, people typically hit this top quartile measure by way of example. Mm -hmm. And that was very important. And you can see a big drop off in fundraising capacity if the majority of their funds didn't, didn't achieve those investment results. What we're seeing in a, in a tighter framework, though, is, is that from a pattern recognition standpoint, most are achieving first quartile type performance if they're able to increase their fund size and go to, towards larger targets to begin with. Okay. And then that pattern starts being some other um, inputs that we're seeing for those that have a higher level of success in the velocity of capital that they're raising and the ultimate size of the capital that they're raising. And some of that has to be with those that have some sector specialization, as that's become, um, I think, a piece that, that LPs are utilizing more and more as they're building portfolios. And it makes perfect sense the same as that happened in the public markets as they matured more outside of using ETFs and, and, and index funds. But if, you, if you're looking at a mature portfolio, we have 150, 200 different GP relationships overall. You have satisfactory, uh, you have good exposure to uh, private equity in general. But then I think our clients are taking a much uh, deeper analysis of their portfolio and saying, do, do I want more tech services? Do I want more enterprise software? Do we want more healthcare? If it's healthcare, what type of healthcare do they want? Um, in order to bring and drive alpha within their portfolios themselves. And so the specialization then leads to them trying to find those GPs that reflect those attributes for their portfolio with the, the caveat being they still wanted to make sure it's in that top quartile type of performance parameters. Okay. And how would you describe the current fundraising climate? You said earlier it's not as bad as 09. So... Yep. difficult to just go well it's as good as this but how would you uh, how would you give us an insight as to what you're what you're seeing from obviously the broad nature of what you see yeah look it's it's there there are a couple common themes and i think anyone who's either raising money for their own firm or engages in the services that we do here at avidity um, is seeing similar patterns mm -hmm. um, and that allocations are tight for new relationships uh, overall um, especially amongst the institutions. Mm -hmm. And the market is quite crowded with a lot of GPs that are raising on a global basis. And the fundraising duration, as I touched on earlier, has elongated materially overall for what it takes to get from start to finish. I think if so, if you look at where you go in cycles and, and where we are in cycles overall, I think you have to look at a kind of deeper kind of how did we get here, Alex? And I think there's some drivers about where we are and now starting to look for kind of some pattern recognition of where we're going, right, for the next kind of 12, 24 months overall. And I, I believe that uh, 19 was a, was a pretty normal fundraising year in which I think it was pretty open to first-time funds, it was open certainly to well-performing mature, you know, platforms. Overall, uh, there wasn't a singular theme that I think was overtaking. You know, software was becoming enterprise software much more, uh, I think, in vogue in terms of uh, people trying to make sure that they had proper allocations to it. So that's both on the LP side, but also on the general partner side of investing in the space if they hadn't in that category in years mm -hmm. past and adding that, that capability to do so. 
But if we went into COVID, we had a pause button in, in March of 2020, and the world had a pause because we didn't know the outcome of what we were facing in, in many ways. Um, and certainly, I think in terms of investing into private equity funds alternatives overall, um, had to wait and see and how did things unfold, both economically, socially, and so on. But the market was quickly flooded with liquidity from the Fed, the central bank, the Bank of Japan, and so on, followed by policy that was providing stimulus so that people who weren't unable to show up to work, right, could support their families in a way of life to get us through, you know, a, a uncertain time. By the time though we rolled into September, the opposite effect had happened in public markets with all the stimulus um, and liquidity uh, had become quite hot. And the opposite denominator effect was transpiring within the marketplace itself. And from a pacing standpoint, a lot of investors had underinvested in the first six months of the year as we waited to see how the events of COVID unfolded overall. So you combine that need to put capital to work with a denominator effect working with in, in the opposite effect that we see so many times. Mm-hmm. And then if we look at the deal volume in the second half of the year, uh, technology as you and I are communicating right now on Zoom allowed people to fundraise much more efficiently and quickly with each other um, through the means of Zoom and not having to travel overall. Deals were being done quicker on the M&A side for the same factors and that you didn't have to see management teams and make as many visits to do it. You could go meet you know, once or twice, but get a lot of work done uh, in this format overall that uh, was quite constructive for it. Then that led to what we saw in a lot of the inputs that we had is that in, in typically people were investing in the more mature funds at that point. First-time funds became more challenged overall. Um, probably some of the smaller funds became more challenged overall, not in all cases, um, but they're probably better said the better known GPs themselves. Look, I think first-time funds became more difficult, less known um, brands and GPs, it was more challenged unless you had had a history with the LP leading into that period of time. But a tremendous amount of capital we felt like going into the fourth quarter of 2020 was going to be put to work. And also because the GPs were so active on the M&A side of things that they were, they were returning the market much quicker, but distributions were increasing for the LPs, increasing their liquidity once again, that much more to invest back into the space overall. Now, if you look at the fourth quarter of 21, we're seeing a different pattern recognition and speaking with our clients and that they were speaking of having a very congested re-up calendar going into 22. And that is what we saw. In effect, the first half of 22, fundraising volumes were actually only down 10% overall. So they were not down meaningfully, but the second half of the year, they dropped like a rock because people had finished re-up and that was where their capacity was. And also uh, a lot of funds returned much quicker at around 18, 20 something months from their last raise. And so we're taking capacity from that existing set that may have otherwise gone to new relationships overall. The other thing that transpired in that was, is that we saw um, overall, there was around the top 10 funds, fundraisers in 22, represented 34% of the market versus the year before is around 21%. It was highly concentrated there. Now today, what are we seeing? We see that continual congestion in 23. 
but we're starting to see openings where a lot of clients now have the capacity, certainly the travel capability, and, and trying to reevaluate in their portfolios where are their areas that they need to address exposure. And we think the mid-market, lower mid-market, um, first-time funds, people, I think, are, are more willing um, to invest in again um, as they're able to um, conduct the proper diligence around that overall. And so we think that this middle market space and lower mid market space actually, and I don't know whether it's six months, Alex, or whether it's 12 months or 18 months, once the analytics kind of start to support overall what we're, what we're hearing, right, um, in terms of when we're speaking to clients overall, of where they want to spend time on in terms of, of deploying capital overall. And so with that in mind, I think that at some point we'll see a tip and we've seen it in 2004. We saw it in 2011. Um, we saw it on the back half of 20, right? When people have tightened up for a very short period of time, unlike the other two cycles that are referenced, but start to have more capacity, buying power, liquidity, public markets are in good shape uh, for them to, to participate in a more robust fashion in terms of picking up those those new clients overall. But for the next six to 12 months, it will be choppy. It will be a lot of, you know, it, it will take a while to get, get races done as things remain very crowded. Okay, interesting. And do you think, you kind of touched a bit there with regards to capacity. Is it a lot of LPs at the moment are holding onto their capital through not sure of, of, of where to invest? Is the money moving away from private equity? Um, is it a, you know, work out as a capacity issue where, you know, we're over leveraged in private equity, we're only allowed percentage of a fund and yeah. our stocks have fallen. Where do you kind of see the kind of main mentality of an LP perspective? Um, you know, I appreciate it's quite a broad question. Yeah, I look, I don't, we're not seeing um, our clients move away from private equity. Um, I think by now it's a pretty firmly entrenched asset class. That is here to stay um, and is a core portfolio tool that's utilized not only by institutions, but is being utilized by family offices um, to the extent high network you know, investors have advisors uh, utilizing it as well. And I'll come back to that point, which is you know, interesting trends that we're witnessing overall in the market. I just simply think the asset class has matured. And so, Alex, we're going to go through dips. We'll see public markets retrench as they did in 22. And there is going to be a, an effect on the private equity buying capacity of said LP at that point, but it's not because they're, they're disinterested in it, right? They probably have 15%, some 20% plus in alternatives overall. It's just, a, it's just that they've hit that target for the time being. And as liquidity returns to the portfolio, both through distributions um, from their alternative investments, but also as you see a recover in public markets and denominator effect, it provides the opportunity then to invest more capital beyond the space again and explore new relationships overall. Um, and in the meantime, it's kind of a one in one out uh, capability that they have of trying to say, trying to add new relationships to their portfolios. Now, it's believed that half the world's wealth um, lies within the individuals itself. It's believed that around uh, for private equity specifically, around 16% of 
um, give or take, uh, of their of their LP base are represented by high net worth individuals and family offices. So the assumption is over the next five to 10 years, it's probably going to be the quickest growing category of investor participation in the asset class overall, which is also a reflection of the institutions themselves having matured their portfolios. And so that's not surprising if you think about it from a just a analytic number standpoint, but those are some of the trends that we believe you will see um, overall. The other thing that from a trend standpoint, we, we believe that will happen over the next you know, five to 10 years overall is that the, the ability to grow is going to change for both the GP um, in terms of each fund iteration from the, from the next vintage to the next vintage to the subsequent vintage mm-hmm. overall that they raise. And what had been a ability to raise between one and a quarter, one and a half, sometimes two times the size of your previous fund and keep charging for it, allowed you to keep recruiting um, and adding to your team overall, retention for the team that you had in place, uh, increase your probably geographic footprint. Um, and then in the 2010s, we had a lot of firms that were looking to grow horizontally, whether it be in private credit uh, capabilities, uh, whether, whether it be in small cap buyout investing capabilities, at times even in things such as real assets, et cetera. But most of that was done organically um, by hiring a series of professionals that had the expertise, putting them on a platform, utilizing your investor uh, relationships, hiring times advisors like ourselves, and then building out that asset base around them um, uh, over a series of years in funds. Given that the markets are much more challenged today, A, the assumption that you will just grow your next iteration and and B, one and a half to, you know, one and a quarter size, sometimes two times, uh, is not a given assumption. And in fact, I've had LP clients tell me even at the new up, um, which is kind of an interesting moniker uh, overall uh, with it. But I think that the reality is, is that it's, it's difficult to just scale your, your given flagship primary investment opportunity, you know, uh, strategy. Then also the uh, organic build for the adjacent um, strategies is more challenged too. And as a result, we think we'll see more consolidation and M&A in the space. Um, for groups that are looking to get, if they're going to go into credit, they may go buy and merge with another with an advantage that has that capability overall so that they can get to the asset level uh, and the critical scale in a much more um, efficient manner and also where there's a lot more risk if you can get there overall in the fundraising markets themselves. I think well, I appreciate the uh, level of clarity and detail that you've gone into in this uh, in this conversation uh, on fundraising. Moving to a different topic, what are your influences? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen? And what would you recommend that others uh, others check out that are uh, podcast listeners? All right. Yeah. No. Look, I, I think from a uh, listening, reading, all those standpoints, um, I enjoy a lot from a. Uh, from a read standpoint, I like it, a lot of a either just uh, straight up uh, nonfiction, but I like historical fiction as well. Um, with the occasional um, uh, library spy novel, like a uh, Gray Man or something like that, that uh, throw into uh, to the mix. 
Um, I enjoy, um, from a watching standpoint, my wife and I choose a number of shows that uh, we uh, that we share together, uh, so that when I'm on the road, I, uh, I can't uh, cheat on them and uh, get ahead and do the uh, the episodes overall. Um, we like lighthearted things. Uh, Shrinking was a great one recently. We enjoyed uh, Ted Lasso was uh, was a was a really interesting one that uh, we enjoyed overall. Um, I like being active, whether it's uh, running, uh, playing playing a little bit of tennis here and there uh, with it. But really, the passion is just the, the family. I have three boys, eleven, ten, uh, and six overall. Uh, they're complete swamp donkeys. Uh, they are very very active. Uh, and they, uh, my wife is, uh, is a state for it, but, uh, with their sports and activity and things, um, that's where I think my wife and I, you know, spend majority of our time, um, on a podcast standpoint, uh, I've enjoyed, you know, a number of different things, I think over the course of time, um, that I've listened to. And I, I originally started it, uh, with, uh, Ted talks. Um, then I went into, um, different, uh, historical podcasts just to better understand, different periods in time uh, with it. Um, like from a life standpoint, I enjoy the Smartless podcast uh, in it. Um, I like to listen to The Economist uh, just because you can kind of get the world in 10 minutes, so to speak, and what's transpired that week uh, because I was a political science uh, major in undergrad. And so I like the combination of both what's going on economically, but they uh, keep it up to speed of what's not just going on in U.S. politics, but what's going on around the globe. Um, so I think those are some of the things that uh, I enjoy from a listening standpoint, reading standpoint. I uh, I do a lot of reading just from a daily basis, just because it's very interesting to me what's going on, given how many aspects touch our business. And there are some things that are very just easy in general, like the Wall Street Journal, uh, looking on Bloomberg, um, uh, looking you know across you know PI, looking across the different. Uh, uh, the blogs that you see each day that, that keep you informed of deal activity, people movements. Um, but overall, what's, what's, what are our clients seeing beyond private equity? And I think that they're you know, consistently wanting to have conversations and get viewpoints from their advisors that I think goes beyond just XYZ manager that you're there to talk to them about. And I think there's industry-specific things, but I think there's also trying to look a layer deeper in that are there macro events that are going to have real impact on how they should think about and managing their portfolios overall. Because um, certainly, while alternatives is, is, is a part of it, um, you know, it, they're typically managing you know a lot of other pieces at the same time. Excellent. And should anybody wish to reach out to you post this podcast, Ryan, what's the best way for them to do so, please? Yeah, so the best way uh, to do so is is that uh, we have a website, uh, AffinityAdvisors.com. Um, it has contact information uh, for reaching out to uh, members of our team, including myself, or it's uh, rschlitt um, at AffinityAdvisors.com. Um, and as I was telling you earlier, Alex, uh, just make sure when you send that one, you include the L and the Schlitt, and I think everyone should be safe. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, we'll put that in the uh, in the show notes. If anybody wants to reach out on the right email address uh, to Ryan, then uh, we can absolutely do that without any uh, any faux pas in there. So, well, Ryan, thank you very much for giving us an insight into the fundraising world. It's a very topical uh, element for private equity currently. There's lots of firms that we work with that are, you know, 
very successful on private on private equity fundraising. Then there's some that are struggling a little bit. So no doubt, absolutely valuable for private equity professionals and portfolio executives to get an insight into uh, into the PE world and what happens with regards to the actual raising of capital to invest in the portfolio companies. So thank you very much for all your insight today. Great. Hey, no, thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, congrats again on the success of the show. Thank you very much. And as always, thank you very much for those joining us. And of course, should you ever need support with private equity professionals or portfolio executive hiring, please do reach out to us at Raw Selection. If you have not already, please do subscribe to the podcast and you'll be notified of the next one, which comes out every two weeks. But till the next time, keep smashing it. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.